Previously, on Solve the World. Lastly, then, in the final ten seconds before impact, Jennifer Dash thought about the dream Miles and Father Thomas implanted in her once upon a time. She thought of the king in his high kingdom. She trusted him. She knew he was a good king, a just king. But why hadn't she dreamed of him since Mecca? Where was he now? Why was her tattoo gone? Where had the scars... Solve the World, a fictional adventure told in 100 episodes. The most instant deaths in history since Sodom and Gomorrah. Episode 62, Mea Culpa. Wish to yourself this, that you never have to make a split-second decision that you'll regret the rest of your life. Jennifer Dash sat below deck of a large tanker, a ship long enough to rival an aircraft carrier. She cupped a mug of hot chocolate in her hands. Rather than bringing the mug to her lips, she bent her back over, bringing her face to the cup. It was something like shock. Shock. She was waiting now waiting to hear good news that would never come. But she didn't know that yet. Not yet. She would in time, but even now. The sudden torrential winds and storms battering the ginormous tanker made hope seem unreasonable. Jen muttered to herself over and over again, Hope beyond hope. Hope beyond hope. Hope beyond hope beyond hope beyond hope. Hope beyond hope. Hope beyond hope. Hope beyond hope beyond hope beyond hope beyond hope beyond beyond hope beyond beyond hope beyond hope beyond hope beyond 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 hope beyond 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 What had she done? Under God's green earth, what had Jennifer Dash done? It happened like this. There was impact. It was, all things considered, a petite, smooth touchdown. Flotation devices popped out from all sides of the plane. The whole passenger section of the plane was going to float, at least for a while. Everything was going to be okay. For a few moments, moments that to Jen seemed to stretch on and on towards eternity, nothing happened. Everyone remained locked and loaded, belted down to their prospective seats. Then, all at once, the stewardesses popped up. 
They ran around like chickens with their heads cut off, but it proved not to be pointless. They were passing out life preservers, getting everybody out of the plane. What followed was confusing. Jen's brain turned somehow to autopilot. She was cognizant that she was moving, that her body was taking care of itself, and yet she felt detached from the whole situation. As it turned out, the plane couldn't float indefinitely. Much later, Jen would recognize the heroism of the stewardesses as they followed protocol to a T. They methodically got everyone out of the plane and onto a large, circular raft that seemed able to comfortably fit maybe two dozen, though in this case it needed only carry 13 unlucky survivors. Jen watched, clinging with both arms to a rope bolted down to the side of the raft, as the plane slowly took on too much water and tipped down into the abyss. Marianne, Egyptian priestess, protector, and murderer, sat poised beside Jen, still ready to attack anyone who dared to lay a hair on Miss Dash. The ocean winds were howling now, picking up speed with every breath. The rolling waves were cascading higher and higher. The plane was gone, and within minutes, various members of the life raft crew were purging their bodies of the day's meals. Jen, however, was stoned. She didn't vomit. She just hung to the ropes and waited, 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 perhaps in a daze. She found herself staring at Smugly, the blonde, white tea-sporting 20-something. Jen had watched in horror only a few minutes ago as Marianne murdered his identical twin. Seeing him now, his nose perfect, unbroken, his neck not squirting out blood, it was as if Jen was staring at a ghost. A momentary vision of Tiff splashed in front of Jen's eyes. What's your secret? What'd you have to offer him to get your VIP pass backstage? Then came the helicopter. It was the tiniest helicopter you ever did see. In it was a pilot and a little person, a diminutive little man who threw down a ladder to the raft below as it hovered ten feet above. Several eager beavers leapt forward toward the ladder. One stewardess elbowed her way to the top of the pile and began to ascend the ladder. The little man stared down from the passenger side of the helicopter, pointing what looked like a flare gun at the crowd below. Jennifer Dash first! Jennifer Dash first! 
Jennifer Dash first, he sang out. The stewardess, of course, ignored the warning and continued her ascension. The little man, apparently not willing to fire his weapon, put his gun down and with two hands began rigorously, violently thrusting the ladder back and forth so as to unlatch the stewardess. This worked so far as the young lady was unable to continue ascending the ladder with it writhing all about, but she wasn't about to release her grip. She hung tight. She was in it to win it. This woman wanted off the raft, and she wanted off now. Who could blame her? Marianne, knowing firmly her role in the drama, took to action. She grabbed one of the stewardess's legs and yanked with a vengeance. The young woman endured the onslaught of Marianne with a yelp, but somehow managed to endure. The next yank, however, timed perfectly with a thrust from the helicopter, air-mailed the stewardess off the ladder. Jen watched this. She didn't move. She vaguely heard the treble voice of the helicopter co-pilot yelling for her, but she didn't budge. Jennifer Dash was tired of being singled out. There were 13 people on this life raft. Why should her fate be any different than the rest of theirs? But, as you well know, she was different. Marianne thrust Jen under her shoulder and essentially pole vaulted Jen onto the ladder. Clinging now to the ladder, but as of yet still unwilling to climb it, Jen stood there. Marianne, still resolved to save her master, pushed up on Jen's rear, forcing her to ascend. And so, reluctantly, she did, and Jen was saved. She climbed up into the helicopter. Once there, the little man said the words she'd remember forever after. Choose one more! What? Jen yelled over the roar of the helicopter and the wind and the rain that was just beginning to deluge the party. There's room for one more! The little co-pilot yelled. Who do you want? Jen was frozen, catatonic. The little man grabbed Jen's cheek, pinched it like an angry grandmother. Choose someone now, or no one gets to come. This jarred Jen into the moment. She had to choose. She looked down from her high, safe perch and examined the souls looking up hopelessly. They were a bedraggled bunch. The rain was coming down now in huge, school bus-sized droplets. The raft was taking water. The waves were pounding. This moment was horrible. If only you could close your eyes and escape this moment. Wake up the next. Forget the now. Live somewhere else. Dwell in some other moment. But Jen couldn't do that. She had to make a decision, and there was no time. She peered down at the sad ones below. Twelve souls. Only one of them could she bring with. Of the twelve, there were the stewardesses, the desmuggled, blonde-haired, bombshell young man, identical twin to the tuxedo Jacob, whom Marianne ended, Smugly's bodyguards, drivers, general goons, and lastly, there was Marianne Margaret, the young woman who saved Jen how many times already within the past 48 hours? How do you make a decision like this? Okay, the bodyguards, the goons, not them. They all looked the same. Jen couldn't choose between them. Same goes for the stewardesses. Jen didn't know their names, didn't know if one of them was more virtuous or deserving than any other. They were strangers. That was the truth of it. So that left Marianne and Smugly himself.
Jen chose smugly. She pointed at him. The blonde boy! The blonde boy! She said to the little man. Soon, he was up. The pilot powered the helicopter up and away. They flew through the air away from 11 sad, wet, vulnerable souls. The pilot sat on the far left, then Jen in the middle with the little co-pilot on her lap, and the smugly boy on the far right. It was too loud to say anything. They landed maybe 40 minutes later on the tanker. It was stormy out, but endurable. As soon as Jen and the boy got off, the helicopter refueled on the deck of the large tanker and soared back into the distance. Once inside, Jen and the boy were given towels, hot beverages, and an explanation that the helicopter was flying back to fetch two more of the survivors. A nice, older woman explained plainly to Jen that the helicopter would continue to make trips out to the raft until everyone was brought safely back. Apparently, the hijackers had no intention of killing anyone. They were going out of their way to save who they could. The problem was, the helicopter never came back. Two days later, on a sunny day at sea, the crew of the tanker, all members of the SCTI program, more frequently just known as SETI, an acronym which stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, would conduct a very sad, tearful funeral for the pilot, Clarence Rasmussen IV, and the co-pilot, a one Mr. Rolf Podhaisky. No one knew for certain, but the universal assumption was that the helicopter got stuck in the storm and went down. As you can imagine, the loss of the helicopter magnified Jen's decision. Smugly, the blonde bombshell, Jen would learn, was named Esau. That was just about the most info for the moment she could get on him. In an effort to validate her decision, on more than one occasion she tried to make friends. Esau was, in a word, non-communicative. There was a rather impressive little library on board the tanker, and Esau had taken an interest in reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. One conversation between Jen and Esau went like this. Jen, hello? Esau, how's it going? Esau sits with his head buried halfway through Jules Verne's adventure. Jen, how's the book? Esau, no response. That's actually what he says, no response. Jen, okay, can we... Can we talk? Esau. Maybe later. Jen knew she had to be careful here. She was unsure of whether or not Esau knew that Jen's bodyguard murdered his brother. It was quite likely he didn't know. But still, Jen had to be careful. Jen. I just... I'm having a hard time processing what happened. Esau. Yes. Jen. Y- yes Yes what? 
Esau. Yes, you're having a hard time processing what happened. Jen. Right. Uh, so, can we talk about it? At this point, Esau dog-ears his book, presents an overly large, clothed-mouthed grin to Jen, and walks out of the room. A later encounter went like this. There was a galley area wherein a spaghetti and meatball dinner had just been served. There were a couple seti people, scientist-y-looking chaps, finishing up their meal. Esau's plate was full, one large meatball just cresting over the ridge of his spaghetti string mountain. He obviously hadn't touched his plate. Apparently, he didn't have an appetite. Jen was finished with hers. She dumped it in a large garbage pail and slid over next to Esau. Jen, not hungry? Esau. From under the table, he pulls out 20,000 leagues once again. Jen, haven't you finished that already? You're, like, always reading it. Esau, have you read it? Jen, no. Is it any good? Esau, it's horrible. Just plain awful. Just like me. That's why I like it. A horrible person likes a horrible book. Esau got up promptly, ejecting his full plate of untouched spaghetti into the garbage. Jen calls out to him as he leaves. You really shouldn't waste food like that. Sometime later, maybe five days, maybe eight, it's hard to say when exactly, Jen gives it one last college try. The tanker is compartmentalized in such a way that despite its grandiose size, the ship feels small. There are no large rooms. The whole floating city is splintered into a million tiny cabins. Right now, Esau's in one of these splintered rooms. This particular room seems to be aimed at rest and relaxation. There's a couch, a side table with a random assortment of aging magazines piled up, a television on top of a desk of drawers. The TV is on and the drawers are open, revealing an eclectic assortment of DVDs. Esau's sitting on the couch, watching an episode of M.A.S.H. Jen spots him, creeps into the room, and sinks into the couch right beside the golden-haired Adonis. Rather than fail at conversation again, Jen chooses just to sit there beside Esau. He's sweaty, smells a little like wet dog. Feeling like this was something of an accomplishment, not repulsing the face behind Smugly for once, Jen decided to take it up a notch. Sitting next to Esau, Jen slowly lowered her head until it rested firmly on Esau's shoulder. He didn't move. Success. Success. Credits started rolling. The episode was ending. Jen worried that this peaceful moment, the first she'd received since... since... staring at the squirrels, maybe? She... well... She didn't want it to end so soon, but to her happy surprise, another episode spun right up. Take it from the top, boys. Esau remained motionless, so Jen felt confident she had at least another 25 minutes to spend here. Five minutes into the new episode, Jen went for broke. With her head still resting peaceably on Esau's shoulder, she reached out to hold his hand. What was she doing? Jen didn't know, but she felt like she needed this. Needed the physical touch. Her fingertips touched Esau's. He didn't recoil, but he didn't wrap his fingers around hers either. She pawed the inner palm of his hand, perhaps flirtatiously. He moved his hand away, but he didn't get up. He didn't make a big deal about it. It seemed to Jen that he moved away not out of repulsion, but shyness? Could this beauty of a man really be shy? This smugly performer? Jen went all in. She bet the farm. 
She raised her head off Esau's shoulders and kissed his cheek. He turned to catch Jen's gaze. She did her best to look seductively into his eyes. He matched her stare for a moment. He wasn't leaving. He was okay with Jen's advances. She was right. He was just shy. She'd have to take the pilot's chair now. She closed her eyes and pushed in. Hope beyond hope beyond hope beyond hope. Jorge Robles was the last man she'd locked lips with, and that hardly counted. That was merely the swan song of a dead man. Besides that, there was just Antonio de Anconia, but he was a Cretan who manipulated Jen. This here, this moment on this tanker, this place out in the ocean, God knows where, here, in front of MASH, Jen was going to have her first, true, kiss. There was a reason she chose Esau over Marianne. There had to be. No. He lunged out of the way. Jen's lips only tasted cushion as Esau flung himself off the couch and out of the room before Jen even opened her eyes. Emotion in this moment for Jen Dash was like the frog put in a pot set to slowly boil. It didn't crash in all at once. It slowly mounted and mounted. The temperature was sneaking up, too slow to register, but too fast to regulate. Jen's legs took her to her little cubby room where she had her own little bed to sleep on. The first day there, the crew had offered her many things, one of which was a pen and paper. Jen hopped on her bed, took her pen and paper, and began scribbling. She made no sound as she wrote, but large teardrops periodically blanketed the page. She wrote, 51 people whom I pity. Number 51, Jenny Dash. Of all the people in the world to pity, Jennifer is first in line. How come adventure always brings cruelty with it? She doesn't want to be bad. She doesn't want to be a bad person. She doesn't want to play for the wrong team. But she can't tell. She can't tell who's right, who's wrong. Marianne scared me. She killed those people. I was scared of her. I don't want to kill people. I don't want to be responsible for anyone's life. She reminded me of Tiff. I wasn't going to do anything to her. It wasn't going to be like it was with Tiff. I just, I had to choose. It was one person or no one. I can't, I can't handle this. I can't handle this responsibility. I didn't want her to die. I can't, I can't, I can't think about her. It hurts too much. It, I can't think about anything anymore. I need to, I need to go back to that room again. How do I get back there? How do I let go of all this? Where's the box for me to put my gunk in? Jen skipped a few lines, then wrote at the bottom of the page. Remember, remember, you think you're being chased? Look at this list of people that want to get me. Number one, Seti. That one was obvious, being Jen's current captors. Number two, Mark Janner, the blood-sucking lawyer. Number three, Louisiana PD. She did evade arrest, after all. Number four, Black Humvees. Although she couldn't be sure they weren't SETI people, Jen didn't think that likely. SETI had lost two of their own people trying to save the rest of the folks on the raft. Whoever was in charge of the Black Humvees didn't care for the loss of human life. Jen paused a moment, then wrote, Number five, Smugly and his people. This seemed unfair. Smugly didn't exactly catch Jen, she came to them. But that TV show, it was sort of a seduction, wasn't it? Number six, Dolores Dahl Burden. 
This also wasn't exactly true, but Jen found it impossible to believe that she wound up locked up in a basement with Dolores by mere coincidence. Number seven, Marianne's parents. This was conjecture, thinking once the Margarets find out what Jen's done to their daughter, they'll come looking. Finally, Jen thought about the town that unanimously elected her mayor, then wrote in all caps, Number eight, everyone in the world. A teardrop fell and stained the word world. Jen stared at the all-caps world and took in the metaphor. The whole world was a tear. Jen flipped the paper over and began vigorously sketching. She wasn't much of a drawer, so the sketch wasn't much more than stick figures. But she sketched it with care and ran her pen lines over it and over it until the ink bled deep. She sketched the lines over and over and over and over until she at last couldn't keep her eyes open anymore. The image was of her dream. The magic kingdom on a hill. She drew a little figure herself, climbing and climbing, stumbling back down the mountain, and then starting anew. She had drawn the stick figure's ascent and subsequent failing so many times that the figure on the mountain became just a blur, an eternal blur. At the top of the mountain, instead of a magnanimous king surrounded by a panoply of riches, Jennifer Dash drew her wooden box. It was closed tight, and it laid on a seat of honor above the clouds, above the whole world. Beside it, just a little lower, there was another wooden box. This one was open. In its mouth was dirt, and the dirt was tumbling out of it. The message was simple. Out of the second box, the entire mountain was formed. There was no way, not in a million years, that all that mountain could be crammed back inside the box. Jen awoke in the morning to the sound of helicopter wings. (sighs) They'd come back. Relief of relief. After all that, the pilot and the co-pilot didn't go down. They'd somehow got lost, or, or, or maybe they were stuck on an island, or, well, who knows what happened. The point was they were clearly back. sprinted up onto the deck of a large tanker, only to find her heart smashed asunder. It was a different helicopter. This one was bigger than the little one she journeyed in before. In the non-pilot seat, an older woman jumped down, took off her helmet to reveal short, spiky brands of silver hair. Jen caught her eye immediately. The lady walked straight up to Jen. Jennifer Dash! She yelled over the howl of the helicopter shutting down. Yeah? The lady stuck out her hand. I'm Joanna de Tocqueville! You can just call me Joe. Can we go someplace quieter to talk? They ended up in the same TV room that Jen and Esau watched MASH on just the evening prior. Joe's voice was calm, motherly. It didn't have the ring of authority to it like the other despots Jen had encountered. Joe didn't speak in the tone of the Patriot, or Mama and Fodderbeck, or Lilith Babbitt, or even Emanuela Gadar, the first mate of the Orion. No. This woman spoke softly, and, dare I say it, compassionately. Jen, I want you to understand how sorry we are for everything that happened. This, this turned out to be a tragedy. There's no way of getting around it. I don't want to seem callous to your loss, and, frankly... The loss of life that we are responsible for. Before we get any further, 
Do you have anything you'd like to say to me? You... you didn't blow up the town, torch the bus? No, Jennifer. No, we did not. We would never do such a thing as that. We cherish human life. We would never do that. How can I believe you? Jen asked. I... I hope... Joe was choosing her words carefully. In time, you'll see our character for yourself. You'll see the types of people we are. Jen didn't have anything to say, except... It wasn't right that you made me choose. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're referring to. (sighs) (sighs) Jen began to moan. She couldn't hold back emotion. (sighs) (sighs) When we crashed, the... The helicopter came. I, I, I could only choose one. My bodyguard, Marianne, she, she saved my life. I, I should have picked her. I, but, I, but, but, I, I. Come here, Joe said comfortingly. And like a mother cradling a sad child, Jen collapsed into Joe's arms. Joe patted Jen on the back, calming her. Calming her. Calming her. This was the physical attention Jen craved. This is what she was looking for yesterday. This is what she was looking for with Esau. Just someone to rock her, pat her on the back, comfort her. Shh. Joe cooed. Shh. It's okay. It's okay. Everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right. Everything's okay. Everything's okay, Jen. Jen picked herself up out of Joe's arms. How do you know? Jen said matter-of-factly. How do you know everything's going to be all right? Joe nodded, closed her eyes, smiled a wizened, grandmotherly smile. Jennifer, what if I told you that we could save Marianne? That maybe she wouldn't have to die? It's, It's too late. But what if it wasn't? What if I told you that all the people on the bus, all the people in the town, even your friends from back home that may have gotten the plague, everyone who died from the bombs, what if we could undo it all? What are you talking about? You're a very important person, Jennifer. You can save us. You can help us. I believe. You can help us, I believe, with our mission. In about an hour, our ship here will hit land. We will be on the island of Tonga. This is a very special island. I'd like to show you why it's so special and why you're so special to us. Does that sound okay? What if I don't come? Sweetie, we're not going to force you to do anything, but... Joe hesitated, looked away for a moment. I believe, Jennifer. With your help, together, we can save Marianne. We can save everybody. Hey guys, Dante Stack here. As you just heard in this episode, as a form of maybe mourning or processing her emotions, Jen in this episode did some sketches. 
Now, I have no ability whatsoever to do any sort of drawing. So I'm counting on you guys. I'm hoping for a fan, a listener out there, to recreate Jen's drawings for this week. Could you do that? Uh, if you do, send your fan art, send that sketch to me at dantestack at gmail.com. My name's spelled D-A-N-T-E, last name Stack, normal like S-T-A-C-K. Shoot me an email um, so that I can share the sketches with everybody and uh, see it for myself. And anyone who ever produces fan art for us, for Solve the World, uh, gets instant access into the Solve the World Society. Once again, I'll remind you, the Society gets episodes a week in advance, so... They have a password to log on to DanteStack.com and stream next week's episode right now. So when you need your next hit and you can't wait till next Tuesday, create some fan art and I'll get you instant access. Um, And particularly this week, I would love it if someone would reproduce Jen's sketches. By the way, while you're on DanteStack.com, be sure to check out our show notes pages where full attribution to all the sound effects and music used in this episode and every other episode, is there for you to check out and click the links and thank the producers of that original content. All right, thanks, guys.